But the question is, are you the one or should we look for another? You know the passage, likely. And it's a pretty logical question, frankly. John is in prison. That that doesn't surprise him. He was a prophet, and that's where usually most real prophets end up. But what brought about the question was after he preached repentance and announced Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he wasn't setting up the kingdom. I mean, people were flocking to the Lord for for the feedings and, and the healings, but but they were not repenting in mass, and Jesus was, was not ascending the Davidic throne. And so John wants to know, are you the coming one, or are we to look for a different person? And listen to how Jesus responds to, to John. He, he doesn't rebuke him, and he doesn't give him a pep talk. Look at his words. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He quotes Old Testament scripture, but the specific scripture that he quotes is, is the evidence that the Messiah would, would provide. There will be specific signs. And all of those things have been happening throughout the ministry of Jesus. The blind see in John 9, the the deaf hear in Mark 7, the dumb speak in Mark 9. The the dead are raised like here in John 11. I mean, the kingdom is coming in the future and the uh, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be there. You just sang about it. Christ will have the the prize for which He died, but... But that's not the evidence that God promised to confirm that Jesus was the Son of God. It wasn't social change or or political reform. The the sign was that He will explicitly fulfill Scripture. And that would be a confirmation so that the people would believe. The Scripture written there that Jesus quotes is, is in the book of Isaiah... And that would come to life in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and it was written then so that John and everyone else could hear and believe. That is the very same reason the passage in front of us was written today. John, not the Baptist, but the gospel writer, says he wrote these words that are before you this morning so that you and I would, would believe the, The purpose statement in the Gospel of John is is given in the very last two verses. You probably are familiar with it, John chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. These things written, not these things seen with your eyes or felt with your heart, but the things written so that you would, would believe. Now, don't ever mis- misunderstand that statement. This is, this is not a beggar's statement like God is providing the Bible and because He loves you so much, He's up in heaven wringing His hands uh, uh, hoping that you'll just read this passage and, and come to Him. This is a declarative statement. These things are written 
to result in faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The news about Jesus, what is written about Jesus, is a command as much as it is an invitation. It's a command to the hardened and the unrepentant, the rebels, to, to believe. It's a command. You must believe. But it's a sweet balm of invitation that you can do so to the humble, to the repentant, and to the, to the needy. And this passage says if you have that faith, you will have life in His name. But, but these same words will be a witness against you on the last day if you reject them. That's why they're written. There are several things in the list that Jesus gives to John the Baptist and and John the Apostle says there are other things not even recorded in the Bible. But, but the final and ultimate sign that Jesus was the Christ is found here in John 11. It was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was the culminating miracle that Jesus performed. There, there are seven miracles in the Gospel of John that demonstrate the deity of Christ. The first was the turning of water into wine and the the last one, the final one, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You may recall that Jesus does another miracle even in the garden, even after this one, when he restores Malchus's ear, but, but that's, a, that's an act of compassion. That was a private miracle, not a public one, in order to, to declare that, that he was the Messiah. And none of the other miracles that Jesus has performed before this one declare His deity and purpose with such clarity, which is why it's the last public miracle. I mean, a resurrection is not a rearranging of the, the deck chairs of, the, of a fallen world. It's divine power on display in a most particular way. It's not only creative work, it's recreative work. It not only makes, it undoes. It, it makes life and undoes death. I mean, the amazing part of this miracle is not that Jesus gave life to an inanimate object. I mean, He did that in the garden. He did that to dirt and He breathed life into it. This sign does that, but it also reverses the effects of death. It it takes this body that's decaying, and after Christ calls it forth, it not only lives, but the, the damages and the consequences of degeneration are, are reversed. And the reason that you and I need to hear that this morning is because that's what He does whenever He, when he saves you. On His terms, by His sovereign power, He reverses the consequences of, of sin. He not only gives you everlasting life, but He removes eternal death. He not only grants you righteousness, He takes away your sin. He not only reconciles you to God, but He restores your life so that you can fulfill the purpose that you were made, that, that you might be able to serve God. And when you come to Christ, you may still have some grave clothes from your former choices and rebellion to deal with, but, but He'll make even those things better. And, and over time, He'll loose them all. He's able to do that with such effortlessness that it requires only His voice. I mean, Jesus talks a lot in this passage, but there are only two words in this amazing miracle. I mean, standing in front of the tomb, He utters the name of the man and a verb. Two words. Lazarus, come forth. Come forth, two words in English, one word in, in Greek. And MacArthur said with those two words, He unleashes the same power that created the universe. 
God reveals from this passage why no Christian ever has to fear death. Christ's glory will be displayed in death. His authority over it is irrefutably revealed, and death obeys His explicit command. You want to live forever? Christ alone can grant you that wish. Are are, are you afraid of death? Do you fear death? His resurrection alone can remove your fear to, to live now. Because whoever believes in Him shall never die. Now there's 57 verses in this chapter. We're obviously not going to to read it all. But the scene is broken down in four parts. There's the the report of Lazarus' illness in verses 1 through 16 where Jesus gets the report and and He talks to His disciples. There's the arrival of Jesus in verses 17 through through 37 when He comes upon the scene. Then there's the the standing in front of the tomb, the raising of Lazarus, and then there's the, the result of the miracle how people respond to it in verses 45 to 57. And it details the final public miracle of Jesus' ministry. The the scene is a preview of the power that's about to be displayed in His own resurrection and the power that will be displayed even one day in the future, the final day when all the dead will hear His voice and and live. And it reveals to us three life-giving declarations of Christ's power over death. I think that's what you see in the resurrection of, of Lazarus. There is the, the glory of God displayed. There's the authority of Jesus declared. And then there's the obedience of death demonstrated. Let's look at the first one. The glory of God that is displayed. There's a request from the sisters... Uh, an intentional delay by Jesus, and then there's a messianic explanation to the disciples. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So John starts by giving us some introductory information. He tells us what's going on. There was a certain man who was sick, uh, who he was. It was Lazarus, where he's at. He's in Bethany and, and the relation that he has to two prominent followers of the Lord, Mary and Martha, her, his sisters. And this is a specific Mary, the, the one who will anoint Jesus with with this ointment. The last detail is, is actually something that hasn't happened yet, and, but it's so that we can identify and know which Mary this, this is, because Mary is a very common name. It's a derivative of Miriam, Moses' sister, so she has to be identified, and it's also to remember her, her devotion to, to the Lord, which you'll see later in the, in the passage. And Because John's gospel is the, is the last one, the first three have already been written, so everyone knows about this, this anointing. So Jesus, uh, or the, John identifies what she did to Jesus here. And these sisters send word to the Lord. Look at verse 3. So the sisters send word to him, so he's obviously not with them, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Jesus is at least uh, a day's journey away, and they give him some troubling news. Notice a few things about the statement. Notice, first of all, that that Lazarus is not dead yet, but he is seriously sick. Uh, Lazarus is an abbreviation for Eleazar, which he whom God helps. And Jesus finds out that he's ill, and it's pretty bad. You can tell that by the word listen. Um, 
It's an urgent appeal, like, like look, this is, this is really bad. One writer noted that they, they approach Jesus when they do. They don't tell Jesus what to do. They just state the fact, the one whom you love is, is ill. And, and they don't even base their plea, whatever their plea is, uh, on, on Lazarus' love for the Lord, but on the Lord's love for, for Lazarus. And then Jesus responds to that message in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, he doesn't mean that Lazarus is not going to die. You know the story. But that death will not be the final outcome of his illness. That's what Jesus is saying. The end, his end, will be the glory of God. Now, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, death and the glory of God. How, how, can, how can death be used to glorify God? We, we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes that death is one of those things living outside of the garden that creates vanity and vexation. It's, it, I mean, when you go to a funeral, you just feel, you know that this is not right. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. So, so how can Jesus say, say something about that and, and say that, that it's, 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 it's for His glory. I mean, every Christian knows that God didn't create mankind to die. Man was created perfect and able to live forever with His Creator and that we disobeyed and that sin brought death into the world. And death's been the reality since the fall. But because of Jesus, death becomes the opportunity for sin to show its power and for God to display His greater power. That's what Jesus means here by, by glory. That's the ultimate purpose of death. I mean, have you ever wondered if God is so powerful, why He didn't stop Adam and Eve to begin with? I mean, why didn't He keep death from happening in the first place? Well, here's your answer. Death was permitted because through the gospel, God will display His greater power over it and, and be glorified, and He'll save those who come to Him in the process. And so similarly, he, he allows an intentional delay. Look if you would at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now the disciples and this messenger doesn't know the glory part yet. They haven't seen the glory part yet. They don't understand that yet. So it likely sounded as odd to them as it may to, may to us. I mean, I think verses 5 and 6 are two of the most interesting in this passage. It says, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then in verse 6, it says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the, in the place where he was. I mean, doesn't that sound odd to you? He loved them, so he stays two days longer when he hears this troubling report. It sounds callous. It took one day for the messenger to get there, and he waits two more days knowing that he was seriously ill. Jesus allows his friends and the ones that he loved to go through this sorrow, this, this difficulty of death and its mourning because he wanted them to witness something that they couldn't without this delay. His power over death. They've already observed his power over sickness. And now they'll observe his power over death. 
You see, he knew they were going to face death living outside of the garden like you, and the only answer to death is his power over it. And they went through this hard, hard time in order to see something more glorious. And that's a principle that you should remember. You might be going through a hard time in order to see something very glorious. And you must not grumble about your circumstances because you have no idea what the Lord is doing in it or what He will bring on the other side of it. I understand in the middle of it, it's painful. It was painful for for this couple. But you have no idea what God's going to do on the other side of it. So trust God not only with with what you see, but but more so with what He says. What you see is real, but but what He says has even greater power. It adds another dimension that, that makes it all right. But why two days? Why not three or five or or ten? It's because he knew when Lazarus would die and how long he would be buried. Specific reason that he waits four days. Rabbinical tradition taught that after somebody dies, their their soul lifts from their body and kind of hovers over them for, for two or three days, and then it departs. That's not in Scripture anywhere. That was just their tradition. But more importantly, a man who was dead over three days was considered corrupted. They didn't have microscopes or or lab tests, but the Bible is a scientifically accurate book. They, They knew the process of death, and on the fourth day, the body would be full of bacteria and decomposing. Therefore, it should be avoided. So any preparation for burial happened as quickly as possible and must happen within within three days. And so Jesus intentionally waits... So there is no doubt about Lazarus' death. He was dead and in the ground four days after he died and he stunk. And so it would be unmistakable when he brings him out. Now this was to teach the disciples about his mission. Here's the Messianic explanation. Look at you at verse 7. It says, Then after he said this to his disciples... Then after, he, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? I mean, they argue with Jesus. You want to go to Judea? I mean, don't you remember what just happened there, why we left there? I mean, the leaders are out to kill you. And then the Lord gives this seemingly tone-deaf answer about walking in the light. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light, he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I mean, he answers by giving a, a proverb that talks about night and day. It's a, it's a very simple proverb that, that means the hours of the day are fixed. There's only so many hours of daylight. And so that's whenever you work. He's saying there's a fixed time for the day and there's a fixed time for the night and you walk or live by the day and you can't add hours or take them away. And the disciples are thinking earthly. He's operating eternally, so he shares this earthly proverb to, to point out an eternal truth. He's saying there's an allotted time for me to accomplish my earthly ministry and it is fixed like the day, just like you can't out at hours to the day. My life cannot be lengthened by precaution, nor can it be shortened by any plot. The, the night will come 
when it comes. And when it does, you can't do anything about it. I mean, don't ever say the Bible is not practical and doesn't have application to real life because He's applying this, this truth to your life and His. Your life is fixed by God, and, and no days can be added to that, just like you can't add hours to, to daylight. I mean, we like to tinker with that, with daylight savings time and all of this, but you can't add any more hours of daylight. You can't add one day to your existence, and you can't take one day away because God has fixed the time. That's what Jesus is saying to His fearful disciples. No one can take it prior to, to when God is ordained. So while I've been given the day, I do God's work without fear. And you can go forward in it and serve God. That's why they haven't been able to kill the Lord yet. I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, it's, it's not because Jesus is some divine escape artist, like he's like Jewish Houdini. They come to fall on him, and then he figures out a way to, to squish out. I mean, they've been trying to kill him since Galilee in Mark chapter 3. They just tried to do it in Judea, which is what the disciples are talking about. They tried to do it on the brow of the hill in Nazareth in his own town, and, and then he, he, he slips through them. It's... It's because of what the Lord said then. My hour has not yet come. What hour? The time of His death appointed by God. And you say, well, that's Jesus. I mean, of course, Jesus has a, has a death day appointed by God. But did you know the Bible says that you have one too? Psalm 139 says your days are written. Look at Psalm 139. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. There's the psalmist talking to God. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The days that God has ordained for you. You can't add one to it, and you can't take one away. And Revelation says that Jesus even has the keys of, of death. And when He unlocks the door, uh, He does that when He chooses and no one can close it. Revelation 1.18, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one and I was dead. And behold, I'm, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. And of Hades, of the grave. His authority over the day of your death. The devil doesn't. You don't. COVID doesn't. And that truth should encourage you as a believer to serve Him without reservation. You, you use wisdom and the brain that He gave you, but, but you do it without fear. And using the brain that God gave you means you listen to His words, not what, he, what you see. For disciples, Jesus is saying you can be absolutely fearless because your day is fixed. But it's also a warning to unbelievers that this day is coming. And you can't do anything to stop it. Like Lazarus. It's pointed unto man once to die. It's pointed. And then the judgment. But look at how Jesus ends in verse 14. It says, So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Here's Lazarus' day. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. We, we skipped over some verses for time. In verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He uses a play on words. And they say, Well, great. Well, in that case, we don't have to go anywhere. I mean, sleep's good for a person who's sick, right? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. Eat chicken noodle soup and lay down. Take a nap. 
so we can just stay right here. They still don't get it. So he says plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad. It's another weird statement, but he explains it. I'm glad that I was not present so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that another resurrection will be possible, which is going to take place in a few days. And then Thomas responds with pessimistic resolve. Look if you would at verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. You talk about the spiritual gift of Eeyore, right here it is. It's not listed on the spiritual gift test, but I know people who have it. Well, then let's just go and we can all die. I mean, die with who? Jesus or Lazarus? I mean, the grammar doesn't indicate, but either way, he doesn't get it. He's resolved, and so that's a good thing. He's resolved that someone is dying, though, and, and if they go, they'll all likely die. And you've been around that guy. They say, Lord, let's just stay here. I mean, why take the risk? And when they're forced to go, they, they declare it's the end of everything. And Jesus says, no one is dying. In fact, the opposite's going to take place. And here is the second life-giving declaration. The authority of Jesus is declared. Uh, declared. His glory is displayed and His authority is declared. There's an arrival in Bethany. There's a discussion with Martha. And then there's a meeting with Mary. Verse 17. It says, so when Jesus came, he, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem, and other Jews had, had arrived in order to comfort the family because it's, it's the holiday season, and so there's a lot of people around there, close to Jerusalem. And, and it says that he was found in the tomb, and it was four days, which is an important number. You ever thought about what actually takes place when someone dies? I mean, we don't like to think about that. We try every way possible to sterilize it. Um, we, we even do that in our funerals, but that wasn't the case in, in this day. I mean, there wasn't any embalming. It was, it was arid, and so when somebody died, they went in the grave as quickly as, as possible. They weren't in a hospital room, typically in their home. And the, the dying process where the body's amazing systems shut down as can take place over days or, or, or weeks, but, but before death, people eat and drink less and they lose all interest in food. Their brain receives less oxygen, so they slowly can become confused or agitated or restless. Their, their skin will even show effects of slowing circulation and less oxygen. Their, their extremities, the Parts farthest from their heart might even become cool to the touch and might even turn like blue or, or light gray. And the closer a person gets to death, it becomes harder to breathe and respiration becomes noisy and, and irregular. Finally, the, the chest stops moving. It, it, it shallows and there's no air coming out of the nose or, or, or the pulse and then the eyes kind of seem glassy. Clinical death occurs whenever a person's vitals have, have ceased. There's no heartbeat or breathing and circulation stops pumping blood. Four to six minutes later, a biological death occurs. That's when the brain cells begin to die and from lack of oxygen and resuscitation is near impossible. 
During this stage, the, the cells of the body begin to degenerate. As Christ has kept them alive, as the system has kept them alive, now, now they go in the other direction. The body's organs, including the brain, shuts down. And, and then all the muscles re- relax. It's called primary flaccidity. The eyelids, uh, eyelids lose their tension. That's why in the movies they put, they put something over them or they, they pull them down because they lose tension. They, they open. Pupils dilate. The jaw might open. Loss of tension in the muscles. The skin sags. You've probably heard of rigor mortis. Well, there are actually three others. Mortis means death. Within minutes of the heart stopping, a process called pallor mortis sets in. Usually the pinkish tone grows grows pale. And when the body fully cools, that's a state known as alger mortis. And then two to six hours after death, because the heart no longer pumps blood, gravity causes that to settle at the, the lowest point to the ground. That's called liver mortis or liver mortis. And if the body remains undisturbed long enough, the parts of the body nearest to the ground can even discolor. And beginning approximately in the third hour after death, chemical changes within the body cause the muscles to begin to stiffen. That's called rigor mortis. Hours 7 to 12, maximum muscle stiffness throughout the body occurs, and then it reverses. Reverses hours 12 and beyond, the muscles begin to loosen as chemical changes happen and eternal tissue decays. And that process goes on gradually over a period of, of one to three days. And eventually all the muscles then, then relax again, called a state of second flaccidity. Finally, the enzymes and the bacteria, the good parts that, uh, that have been in the organs keeping everything going when the body was alive now starts to break down and nasty things happen. Color changes, bacteria decay in the body. You say, that's gross. It is. It's an inglorious end. The inglorious end to God's pinnacle of creation. It's the effect of the fall and sin. This is the condition that Lazarus was in whenever Jesus comes four days later. No wonder the King James says he stinketh. This is not the first time that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. You remember that? Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, but where is she? She's not in the grave. She's in her home. And he raises her up and says, give her something to to eat. So that was, she didn't even make it to the tomb. And the second one is the widow of Nain's son. He raises him in in a funeral parade. So he dies, and they're quickly taking him to to the tomb because that's what you did. There's there's no embalming, and he raises him in in the funeral procession still within the three-day period, but Lazarus was four days in the grave. And so the resurrection is unmistakable and undeniable. And when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, and look at what they say to one another. Look, if you would, at verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Oh, how many times that they probably repeated that to one another while Lazarus lay dying. Oh, if only the Lord was here. And now she says it to him as if it's too late. And look at Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus said to him, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She has excellent eschatology. Notice she expects a resurrection and a kingdom. 
And Jesus answers with words that cause death to shudder. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. It's not a day. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jesus says, I am that I am. I am the resurrection, not a day in the future. It's me. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and life in person. The full blessed life of God, all of His glorious attributes. He is the cause and the source and the fountain of life. And because He lives, we can too. You say, how does that take place? Well, Jesus tells us. Look, look if you would, at the, the verse again. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You may face that death that inglorious death that was described like Lazarus did, but, but even if he dies, you'll live. And then he says, do you believe this? Well, do you? Martha does. She says, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. Can you make that statement? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the sin-bearing Christ who was sent into the world to save you from your sin? Does your life evidence it? Is He Lord? Then you may face physical death, but you will never die. But the Lord's not done declaring His authority. Next comes Mary. If you would at verse 28. When she said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and He is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up and quickly was coming to him. And then look at verse 32. Therefore, Mary, when, uh, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet and says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is one of the most significant parts of the, of the story because it shows the Lord's reaction to sin and death. It says He wept in verse 35. It's the idea of literally bursting into tears. The, the word comes from, from snort. It's like you're trying not to cry, but, but then you're overtaken. And Maybe you've been there. You've been in a funeral, you've been in a public place, and and you're just, the emotion is welling up inside of you, and, and you're trying to hold it in, and finally you can't. It just, it just, it just comes out. And it almost sounds like a snort whenever it's, it's abrupt. He's not just sad over the pain that it caused his friends. He's, he's standing in front of death with the, with the wailing echoing around him, and Christ in grief and anger over the fall and all of its properties. He, he bursts forth in emotion. Don't ever think that God is indifferent to your pain. He knows, He feels, He cares, and He, and he proved that by doing something about it. 
show the third declaration, the obedience of death, demonstrated by Lazarus. Some amazing trust that removed the stone. There's prayer that prepares the people, and there's the command that raises the dead. Look at you at verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it, and Jesus says, remove the stone. He still deeply moved in sympathy toward his friends. He filled with indignation toward sin penalty. Commands the, the stone lying against the tomb to be moved to expose the body. Now, frankly, I do not know of, a, of an analogy that, that you and I could relate to because we have sanitized everything. And it's not bad that we do that, but... In the context, I mean, going back to the graveside... Uh, the grave after four days and digging up the, the, the grave to expose a casket. You know, you would expose a casket, and even if you opened it, the person would look very much like what they did whenever they were in the visitation time because of, in, because of embalming. That, that's not what Lazarus would have looked like. Think of all of those things that I just told you. I mean, this was an act of trust to remove the stone. That's what Jesus is calling for. And John is very specific that Lazarus is dead. I mean, that's what he wants you to understand. There's a, there was a tomb, it was a cave, a stone laid against it, sealed. And in case you doubt it, Martha is the sister of a dead man. That's how she descri- he describes Martha. And we're even told that he's there for four days and now he stinks. He's past the point of no return. Here's a beautiful picture of faith. Jesus' command makes no sense, humanly speaking, And Martha's question acknowledges that. She says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. That's a logical response, isn't it? It's probably what I would say. Are you sure? You would have probably had the same reservation. But Jesus directs her to trust toward his promise, not what she feels or sees or thinks. Look at verse 40. Notice how he he redirects her. Did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? He says, Martha, take your eyes off of the dead and look toward the resurrection and the life. Don't pay attention to what you see. Listen to my word. Mary and Martha both have faith. They've already expressed it. It's faith to a certain point. So the Lord directs them where to find more, just like he does with us. I mean, they both said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. They, they believed that the Lord was the Christ and that he had power to, to heal the sick. But this power, power over death, is not something that, that they had come to believe yet or experienced yet, which is another reason he does this miracle. This is what the Lord wants to show them because he loves them. And our faith is our believing response to, to God's promises and and sometimes we say, I believe, help me believe more. That, that's what the man's saying. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help me believe more. I pray that all the time. Help me believe more, Lord. I want more faith to believe what, what you say, to grasp it to, to a greater degree. Because faith looks to what God says, not what we see. It looks beyond our ability to God's ability. And it believes God is able 
even if we don't know how. And you may be sitting here and say, how will God take away my sin? How can God undo the mess that that I'm in? How can He straighten all of that out? And Jesus says, look away from what you have done. Look away from the tomb. It is ugly. When you pull the, the stone back, what is inside of your life and what was inside of my life is nasty. But look away from what you have done and look toward me. Listen to my words. Trust what I promise and what I'm able to do. And if you will, he says, you'll see the work of God. Look at verse 41. So they obey the act. So they remove the stone. They trust his words and then Jesus prays. This prayer is not for himself, but those watching. It's for the disciples that he delayed so they would believe. It's for the Jews who come to mourn. And it says many of them believed in verse 45. And then it's also for Mary and Martha. And what he's about to do is not as a miracle worker, but as the promised Messiah. That's why he prays. Look at what it says in verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. More words, hearing the words of God, so that they may believe that I'm the one sent by the Father, by you, Father, as the Savior of the world. And Notice Jesus doesn't ask for power to do this. He already has the power. And in prayer, He directs their eyes away from the grave toward trust in His Word and then upward to the Father's plan so that they might believe that He is the sent one. And you must do the same thing. And if you do, you'll see the dead live by Christ's command. Look at verse 44. Here is the obedience of death demonstrated. Does it resist? Can it resist? Verse 44, it says, He shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. One preacher mused about what would the Son of God's voice sound like? His cadence would obviously have been amazing. It would have been perfect. This is he shouts in a loud voice, the top of his lungs without distorting it. Two words, Lazarus, come forth. Even the dead can hear God's voice. There's a humorous story I remember about my grandmother when they were discussing building a NASCAR track that was going to be next to our family cemetery in West Virginia. Many of the community were very excited about this because of the economic prosperity that, that it was going to, to bring, but, but she was not excited about it at all. And when asked why, she said she didn't want a racetrack next to where she was going to be buried. Because she didn't want to lay there and listen to those cars going around and around and around. Of course, she couldn't because she was dead. But did you know there is one thing the dead can hear? They can hear the voice of God. And they respond too. Now think of this. Think of back to what I described of what happens to the human body at death. And Lazarus was sick even before that, weakened down to his deathbed, and now he's four days and he's in the ground. 
MacArthur said he has no brain waves to process the words. He has no heart to pump blood. He has no ears to function to hear. And as a dead man, no will to act. His lifeless body is there. And yet Jesus speaks and he responds. By the sovereign power of Almighty God, Jesus speaks and Lazarus hears. And you can hear his voice today too. Though you're dead in your sin, no ability to come yourself, even in that state, you can hear the voice of God saying, Come. Come to me and I will give you life. Believe upon me and I will raise you up on the last day. Do you hear that voice? What does that voice sound like? It sounds like a witness inside of you that what this man's saying is true. These words are true and, and that I need to respond to these words and I haven't responded to these words. There's a, there's a, it sounds like an awareness that you're a sinner. It sounds like I know that, that there's a problem and I'm not right with God. And in these words, though, I hear hope. These words, I hear hope. That's what it sounds like. You hear that voice? What are you waiting on? Lazarus doesn't wait. Look at verse 44. The man who had died came forth. Now that is an understatement if there ever was one. Bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around him with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you think that you're finally going to get up and remove the entanglements of your sin? Wash the stench of death away? I mean, how? You're already dead and separated from God. You have no ability to overcome your sin. You've probably tried before. And you surely have no ability to forgive it because the offense was against God. You must do what Lazarus has done. Simply hear and believe. And Lazarus receives life solely by the words of the Lord. Recreation, just like in Genesis. Let there be light, and there was light. And the first Adam became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The dead unable to hear are made to hear, and the inanimate soul is given life by God's command, and it moves, it acts, it believes, it calls, it obeys. And you will do that now, or you will do that later. The dead can hear the voice of God, but all of the dead will hear the voice of God one day. That's what Revelation 20.11 says. One day God will call out to all the dead. And they'll gather together from far and wide and stand before His great white throne for judgment. And on that day, you'll hear and you'll respond if you don't come now. But this entire experience in John 11 is to prepare them for another tomb that they'll, they'll stand outside of in a, in a few days. Here it is in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Two things that are very different about this tomb scene, right? The stone was already rolled away and there's no body inside. 
You see, the one who is the resurrection doesn't need anyone to speak his name and call him out of the grave. He laid down his life and he willingly took, up, took it up again when he chose. He has the power to lay it down, he has the power to raise it up, and he has the power to raise you up again and forgive your sin and give you life. You hear his voice and you respond to his voice. What must you do? pattern of faith that we're given in this passage. You must look away from your sin. Look away from the grave. Look away from what you've done and look to Jesus Christ. Trust in His promise. And then obey His command. It's as simple as that. Chew by your heads. Father, we come before You and I give You thanks and I pray I believe. Give me more faith to believe. More faith to believe your word at your word. Not look for for other things to confirm it simply because you said it. And that in that belief I would obey. And Lord, as our eyes are tempted to be drawn back to to our sin or what we've done or how it's going to happen or any of those things... Turn our ears toward your word. We might hear and then we might obey. I pray for anyone this morning, Lord, that needs to respond to your voice. I pray that they would do that today. I pray for everyone who has responded already. You would increase their faith. That we might live for you while it is day. We have a fixed number of days. Let us not waste them, Lord. Let us live without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.